Father God, thank you so much uh, for this night. Thank you that the roads were cleared up uh, over the last day and we were able to get here safely. Um, God, thank you for the plows and those who shoveled and took care of the sidewalks and the stairs um, so that we can get into the building safely. God, I just pray that tonight as we dig into your word and get an understanding of your law and what was happening at the time, um, that we can just learn from your word, learn to love you more, understand you better. So God, I just, I pray for us tonight to just feel closer to you uh, as we dig into your word together. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are in Exodus 19, that's where we're starting, um, and we are going to get through Exodus 24. Um, and we'll be doing Exodus 25 through 40 over the next two weeks. But where we left off is the Exodus has happened. They have left, the Israelites have left Egypt. Moses is in charge. They have worshiped and complained uh, and gone back and forth between worship and complaining. The Israelites have. Moses has been frustrated. God has been frustrated. The Israelites have been confused about what is going on. God has provided them manna from heaven. Um, he's provided them bread for life, water for life by Moses striking a rock. He has shown them how to take care of themselves day after day and to trust God each day instead of hoarding uh, and expecting to lean on their own gifts and understanding. Uh, rather to trust God that he, if he took care of them today, he will take care of them tomorrow. And then Moses got some great advice from his father-in-law Jethro about how to disseminate and uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Delegate, that's the word, uh, to the population so that he's not in control of everything and he doesn't have to oversee every single person because there's two to three million Israelites. There's 600, over 600,000 military age fighting men, which means there's probably around between two and three million total people. Um, and one person cannot take care of that by themselves. So he has gotten some advice from Jethro on how to delegate. The New Testament takes that advice in the book of Acts uh, when there's an issue with the widows being uh, disseminated food, um, and there's an issue between the Greek-speaking Jews and the Jews from Israel. And they took Jethro's advice, and they decided to delegate so that the apostles could focus on the teaching and preaching of God's word. And they gave, they appointed seven deacons to take care of the body, to take care of the servant work. And so they got that idea, really, um, is based on what the advice Jethro gave Moses. And that was chapter 18 of Exodus. So now we're in chapter 19, and where we are is at Mount Sinai. So Moses has led the Israelites back to Mount Sinai. Now for the Israelites, it's not back to Mount Sinai, but for Moses, it's back to Mount Sinai. Because this is the place where Moses saw the burning bush, where he got his command of, from God of what to do, what his purpose was going to be. And he has, as a leader, has taken them back to this place to be to confront God and get the direction from God of what to do next. And, you know, I think just in general, there's a bit of a principle there to always think back 
um, to where we met God or those mountain peak moments where we had our strongest connection with God. Um, and when we're struggling, sometimes it's nice to visit those places again and just feel God's presence again uh, and get renewed. And some of that happens to Moses. Um, but it's important not to rely on those experiences or expect that things are always going to be like that. But Moses is there at Mount Sinai, and the, the people are about to get a taste of what Moses has experienced. And so we're going to pick up in, in verse 12, as they're at the base of Mount Sinai. And God says this, You shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, Take heed to yourselves that you do not go up the mountain or touch its base. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. Not a hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or shot with an arrow. Whether a man or beast, he shall not live. When the trumpet sounds long, they shall come near the mountain. So God is saying, what, it, what is about to happen here is going to be extremely holy and righteous, and the people should just be careful. Don't, don't touch what they don't understand and what they can't fathom. Don't touch the mountain when God is speaking to Moses on top of it. Um, if they do, they're going to die. And if the person dies because they didn't listen to Moses' commands, don't touch that person. Just shoot them with an arrow. <laughs> Stay away when you get rid of that person. Don't get near them. Um, really talking about the awesome power and might that you can't touch. But for some reason, Moses is allowed. Uh, so Moses went down from the mountain to the people and sanctified the people, and they washed their clothes. So basically, they're, they're purifying themselves as they're walking towards God's presence, as they're about to be in God's presence. Now, washing your clothes, for us, doesn't seem like a huge deal, but they didn't have washing machines, and they were wandering through the Sinai Desert. So they're in a desert situation as nomads at this point, so washing their clothes is a big deal. Um, but they took the time to stop and find a way to wash their clothes so that they could be pure before God. And so he said to the people, be ready for the third day. Do not come near your wives. So they're abstaining from anything that could potentially make them unclean. And then it came to pass on the third day in the morning that their thunderings and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and the sound of the trumpet was very loud so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. So just by this description, you, it doesn't say who played the trumpet, but I'm thinking it's probably an angel because if the trumpet was a ram's horn that was played by one of the priests or one of the members of, of the congregation of Israel, that would not scare them. They would see where the noise was coming from. But an angel is playing a trumpet and it is getting so loud that the people were trembling because they're in the presence of God's awesome power. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Now, Mount Sinai was completely in smoke because the Lord descended upon it in fire. Its smoke ascended like the smoke of a furnace, and the whole mountain quaked greatly. And when the blast of the trumpet sounded long and became louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered him by voice. And the Lord came down upon Mount Sinai on the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses up to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. 
So I can't even fathom this scene. I mean, it, it sounds like a volcanic eruption. Like the earth is shaking, there is a pillar of fire and smoke surrounding the mountain and a trumpet is blasting and a severe noise that's getting louder and louder is surrounding the Israelites and they're scared, as they should be. Being in the presence of God is not something to, you know, kind of roll your eyes at. This is a, it's a big holy moment here. Um, and then after this piece of scripture, Moses gets more instruction from God that's basically repeating to the, giving the same rules to the people. Be careful. Don't come. Don't touch the mountain. Um, and so we're going to skip forward a little bit to chapter 20. Because now Moses is on top of the mountain, and this is what God says. God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Before God starts giving Moses the law, I think this is interesting because there's smoke surrounding this mountain. The earth is quaking, the trumpet's sounding. It looks like a volcano going off. It's a terrifying moment. And still God's, God reminds Moses who he is with his words, not just the display. And he says, God, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Because it's not just about his awesome might and power. It's about the personal relationship he shares with Moses and the Israelites. Yeah, God is mighty and awesome and all-powerful and intense and should be revered, but he's also personal. And what did God do for them? He brought them out of Egypt and he redeemed them from slavery. And then he gives them the big 10, the big 10 rules, the 10 commandments. So we're gonna go through these. Uh, if you haven't heard these before, that's because they got removed from everything. Just kidding, but yeah, I'm not really, but they're not removed from Exodus. So we're gonna, or Deuteronomy. He says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of, the, out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And here's the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. That's just the first one, which makes sense. It should be, because otherwise you're saying that something else is as worthy of worship as God, which just is not true. And in this mighty display, it probably makes more sense than ever to Moses. Um, and it should make more sense to us but like the Israelites, we constantly fail. You should have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself, number two, you shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of fathers upon children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. So he's saying, don't make an idol. Do not create any image of anything that it resembles me. Don't do it. You can't. Anything that we try to create to make it look like God would be an abomination in comparison to who God really is. Because God is outside of time, matter, and space. He's outside of the universe. He's above and beyond. He's completely holy and set apart. Anything we make out of created material of something that is to represent something uncreated would just be unholy 
to God. And so that's what he's saying. And he's also saying, don't make idols out of creation. Don't make idols out of the things in the sea. Don't make idols out of the things of the earth or in space. Don't do it. Don't worship creation. Worship the creator. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Again, God's holiness is on display and to not take it lightly in the commandments. Remember the Sabbath day and to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath day the Lord your God, of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do work, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant or female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it or made it holy. This is interesting because it's the only law in the Ten Commandments that isn't about morality. It's just simply remembering that what God, God created in six days and rested on the seventh, and he gave us the seventh day as a day of rest and to keep it holy and to remember God on it. Honor your mother and father that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord God has given you. So I use that one at youth group all the time because they should know that to honor their parents because teenagers don't. You shall not murder, which often gets misquoted as thou shalt not kill, but it's you shall not murder. Interestingly, in Solomon's writings, in uh, Ecclesiastes, he writes, there is a time for everything, and one of the times is a time to kill. For instance, wartime, self-defense. But you shall not murder. Do not commit premeditated anger, murder. You shall not commit adultery. I think that's probably a good idea. You shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, and you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, or his female servant, nor his ox, or his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. So the last commandment always, as an American, just makes me laugh, because the American dream is always keeping up with the Joneses, right? Like always being jealous of what the people around you have. If you live in a cul-de-sac... I do not, but that's the picture in my head as the people who live in a cul-de-sac. And, you know, one person's got a pool, then everybody wants a pool. Um, And that's kind of, you know, that's the picture that I get, and we just don't seem to understand. But there is a piece of it that sort of gets to the heart of almost the American dream. Because we're, we're so free and so lucky, and we have so much, and we've been able to create homes that are so comfortable that I think we often, through our covetousness and greed and, and blessing that God has given America, we've created a world that has made it hard for us to yearn for heaven. It is hard for us to focus on the kingdom and to be excited about the kingdom coming because we're so comfortable and attached to what we have. Where in so many cultures, even still in the world today, you know, they look at what a living on a dollar a day looks like and heaven sounds amazing, but to us, we're so comfortable and we have so much that we, death for us is giving us, giving up things instead of receiving something because of the way we think about our lives. And so I think about coveting a lot 
in the way that we live our lives here and how much it would mean for us to let go of materialism and the comfort and the things that we have to really be focused on the kingdom because as great and as comfortable as we have made lives here, heaven's going to be better. Now, all the people witnessed the thunderings, the lightnings, the flashes, the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood afar off. Then they said to Moses, you speak with us and we will hear, but let not God speak with us lest we die. And Moses said to the people, do not fear for God has come to test you and that his, his fear may be before you so that you may not sin. So the people stood afar off, but Moses drew near the thick darkness where God was. So this display, what had happened in front of all of the Israelites, scared them to the point where they said, coming that close to God's presence and seeing his power, they got to a point where they said, Moses, we'll listen to you. Will you talk to God on our behalf? This was too terrifying for us. And Moses basically said, sure, but it's good because the fear of God will cause you to not sin. Understanding his true and mighty power will help you to not sin. Boy, did that last a long time for the Israelites. But the truth is, Solomon also writes that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Understanding the true and great power of God is the beginning of understanding wisdom in following him. Because there is something that I think we could all use a little bit more of, and that's reverence. Knowing truly how awesome and powerful God is. And I think some of the lack of reverence in the American church has to do with the avoidance of the Old Testament. Because we don't really talk about the huge, sweeping, mighty, powerful works of God or how all of that had orchestrated the exact environment that was necessary for Jesus to come and for the apostles to spread the, wor the word across the world. If these, for instance, in the book of Daniel, when he predicted the, the kingdoms that were to come, and Medo-Persia came and conquered Babylon, and then Greece conquered Medo-Persia, and the Romans conquered Greece, and then the Romans created this complete interconnected world with all of these roads that led to Rome and connected the whole world. The world was set up prime for God to come and have his word spread at the right time because he came at a time when the world was at its most connected in the ancient in the ancient world, and the apostles had an easy way to travel to all of the places to talk about God. And so, very unique how all of that comes together and works together. And if we, if we talked about that more, maybe, and I'm not talking about just this church, I'm talking about big C worldwide organization church, particularly in America, if we understood how all of it points to Jesus and how all of it works together to make it such a perfect time. We might have a bigger picture understanding of who God really is and how impressive his, prof his prophetic work and his providence in history 
to make the world ready for Jesus. Now, when we get to chapter 21, this is the law. And I'm not going to read through every single one of these because this is an overview. Now, I would love to go back through this and do verse-by-verse study like we did in Revelation. But we're going to kind of just cover sections because uh, some of it's repetitive and there's just a lot of unique and um, just interesting pieces here. So we're just going to kind of cover the whole section and, and try to grasp it. So, you know, first you have the law concerning servants. This is really chapter 21, uh, verses 1 through 11. And this is really talking about how you were to treat your slaves and what sort of things were supposed to happen with your slaves in the ancient times. Now, the law doesn't tell you to participate in slavery. But if you do, the Mosaic law tells you what to do if you do participate in the act of slavery. And one of those things is to offer your servants after seven years the option to go free. So God had rescued the Israelites from slavery and he is not an endorser of slavery. He's an endorser of freedom. Even if you participate in the practice in the ancient times, God offers freedom to the servants. Um, But there are some interesting things in here that just, I know this was a question a few weeks ago, so I want to address it. There, one of, the, one of the rules is if you have a slave and in your household as that person is your servant, you offer them a wife and then they decide to go free after the seven years, the wife and the children don't go with the slave. But if they choose to remain a slave or re- remain a servant in your household, then they would keep their wife and children under your household as a servant for you. What is all that about? Honestly, you have to think in terms of ancient times, right? This is in like the middle bronze age of the world. It's not like modern, modern day era. So you have to understand what God is saying here. This is almost protection for the female servants because the type of of servant owner who would allow their servant to independently have a family and children are probably treated pretty well. But if they go off on their own and leave their master who treated them like a family member and treated them really well, there's no real guarantee of how they're going to treat their wife and children once they're not in their master's household. Um, But if they decide to stay and they're in that sort of godly relationship with master and servant, then they keep their wife and and children. And so I think part of that has to do with just how you treat people because you're supposed to treat your servants well and treat them like family. Uh, And if you treat them well and you offer them basically an independent life just working for you, they're going to want to stay. And if they don't want to stay, then you're not subjecting the female servants to whatever crazy thing they're about to go do after serving you for seven years and not being a property owner and not having uh, any land or wealth to draw from. So they're really protecting the female servants in this. This is almost chivalrous. And then you have really the the laws concerning violence next between uh, verses 12 and and 26 or 27. Uh, And this is where we get the term 
uh, when people refer to Old Testament law, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, and stripe for stripe. That's verses 24 and 25 in chapter 21. And this is really about exact retribution. So when someone strikes you, they get struck back. Or if someone kills a family member, then they die. Um, And so we often think about this as almost endorsing violence in a way. But I would rather look at this as God understanding the brokenness of man and limiting it. Because when someone wrongs you, when someone wrongs me, right, when we want to exact vengeance on what someone has done for us, we want to go tenfold, right? Um, Because we want them to feel how it made us feel when we were wronged, and it's often much worse than what was done to us. And so I think this was a way of limiting man to an exact retribution. So, you know, if someone gives you a black eye, they get a black eye. They don't get two black eyes and, you know, their kid gets beat up too or something. You know, you don't want, you don't want to go too far. So God limits man to exact justice, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, rather than going overboard and to make it about objective reality rather than subjective feeling. So the retribution was based on objectively what really happened. Did you get punched in the eye? And that person gets punched in the eye where if you take a subjective experience and you say, I got punched in the eye, how did it make me feel? Then the other person gets murdered. And so that's bad. It's limiting man to objective reality and to face facts outside of their feelings. Next we have really how to deal with each other's um, animals. So, you know, if you're grazing, if they're grazing in the same field and one of your animals gets rambunctious and kills the other person's animals, how do you deal with that, kinds of, kinds of things like that, especially because this is ag- an agricultural society. They live off of shepherding and farming and planting. And so what do they do if part of your livelihood or your livestock is injured by someone else? And there's retribution for that. And that's what the next set of laws deals with through the rest of chapter 21. And then in chapter 22, it deals with property rights and then moral and ceremonial principles, really just dealing with kind of the moral law and making sure that you don't give to your base desires. Like, don't give in to fleshly desires is what the moral and ceremonial principles are all about, and that's chapter 22. And so God is just offering these things to Moses, and this information went directly to the people that Moses put in charge and delegated to to look over everybody so that these judges had a, something to address or to uh, relate to when they were dealing with the people's problems so that it didn't have to come up to Moses. So God is giving really detailed information about all of these unique little circumstances so that these judges and people that Moses delegated to have a frame of reference in how to deal with the people so they don't have to constantly go to Moses and ask him for his advice. And God is handling that for them. Now, picking up in verse, or in chapter 23, it says, you shall not circulate a false report. Do not put your hand with the wicked to be an unrighteous witness. You shall not follow a crowd to do evil, nor shall you testify in a dispute so as to turn aside after many to pervert justice. 
you shall not show partiality to a poor man in his dispute. Now, I really like this piece. This is sort of how we tried to design our justice system because it's about not allowing your feelings to shade the truth. That last piece, don't show partiality to a poor man in his dispute. Just because you might feel bad for someone's circumstance doesn't mean that that person is in the right. You know, don't circulate a false report. Don't lie. And then I like verse two, don't follow a crowd to do evil, right? This is the everybody's doing it argument. If every, well, everybody's doing it, that means it's okay. Everybody thinks this way. That means it's obviously moral. Paul, I think, puts this uniquely in Romans 12 when he says, do not conform any longer to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Paul also points out in the book of Acts, before he writes Romans, that the Gentiles have a circumcision of the heart when they're arguing about the law and following the law to the letter when the Gentiles are being offered in, in a place in the church. And the Jews are like, shouldn't they keep the law just like us? And Paul says, talks about the circumcision of the heart and that the law would be written on the hearts of man, right? And so he's saying, don't, be, don't conform to the ways and the patterns of this world. Don't be legalistic. Don't stick don't always think the way we've always thought. Rather, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Let the Holy Spirit do a work in you. Understand what God's word really says. And this is really what God is saying to Moses right here. Don't follow the crowd. Just because something is interpreted X doesn't mean that that's what I meant. You know, God is showing mercy God is making sure that objective truth and objective reality outweighs subjective feelings. You know, reality matters, truth matters. And to not allow, uh, especially in verse three, to not allow someone's, the, your compassion for someone's circumstance to outweigh the truth of the matter. And so whoever the guilty party is should be held guilty um, and to not allow your emotion to shade truth. So I think that's really important, especially in our society today. Now, as you skip down in verse 10, you get to talk about the Sabbaths. And I just want to cover this really quickly because this is important as we move towards Daniel. So it says, six years you shall sow your land and gather in its produce. But the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. In like manner, you shall do with your vineyard and your olive grove. And then the regular Sabbath, six days you shall work, and on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may rest, and the son of your female servant may be refreshed. And so God is not only setting up a Sabbath in the week, but also in agriculture for the years. Six days you are to, or six years you're to work the land hard and harvest, plant, sow, and, and reap. But on the seventh year, let the land rest. Now, in Israel's history, later on, they ignored this rule. And for 490 years, they didn't let the land rest. They just kept sowing and harvesting and reaping. And when they were exiled to Babylon, they were exiled for 70 years. Why? 
490 years of not letting the land rest when you're supposed to do it every seven years equals 70 years that the land didn't get its rest. And that's how long they were kicked out of Israel. So this law will help us understand portions of Daniel better when it's talking about a week in Daniel chapter 9. And now there are three annual feasts. So there's the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This is um, verses 14 through 19. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of First Fruits, and uh, Pentecost. Those three feasts are the feasts where the men who are around Jerusalem and can make it are supposed to come to Jerusalem. And so this is very interesting in terms of Passover and Pentecost because Jesus was crucified on Passover when everyone was there to see it. The Feast of First Fruits is the first Sabbath after Passover, so everyone remained in Jerusalem. And so when Jesus was resurrected, that's why he was able to appear to over 500 people because there were loads of people in Jerusalem at the time of the resurrection. And then also the Feast of Pentecost, that's why Peter gave his sermon and was speaking a ton of different languages to people. Um, And they heard, everybody heard things in their own language because people all around surrounding Israel and surrounding Jerusalem would have been in Jerusalem for Pentecost. And so those three feasts were when the most population was in Jerusalem. Um, So God didn't hide the ball, right? When he did, when he sent Jesus and we sent Jesus to do his work, he didn't do it quietly. Jesus was crucified, resurrected, and the Holy Spirit came down on Pentecost, all when there were the most people there. This was not a quiet event, and it was made known very loudly. Pentecost was a name that was given to in-gathering leader. So what, what they represent is the feast, Passover kicks off the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So Passover is the first night of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And it's a separate holiday, but it's this part of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Um, the Feast of first fruits is the first Sabbath after Passover, and that represents the gathering of the first pieces of the harvest in, in fall or in the springtime. And then the Feast of Pentecost, or the ingathering, is the main harvest when the bulk of what you would gather comes in. And so that's what that represents. At the, the first Sabbath after Passover. So it could be one day or a week after Passover, depending on which day Passover fell on, because it started on the 14th of the month, and the 14th could be on any day. So depending on when Passover fell would determine how many days after Passover the um, Feast of First Fruits would start. Interestingly, when the year that Jesus was crucified, he was crucified on Passover, and it's the, the Feast of First Fruits is the first day after the first Sabbath. So I misspoke earlier. So the first Sabbath would have been Saturday when Jesus was in the tomb, and the first day after the first Sabbath would have been Easter Sunday. Right? And Paul in some of his letters, refers to Jesus as the first fruits of the resurrection. He is the first among the resurrected to be eternally resurrected. Like Lazarus was resurrected, but he died again. Jesus was resurrected, and he's still alive. 
And so he's the first of the eternally resurrected. He's the first fruits of God's work. And the fulfill, ultimate fulfillment of Pentecost will be the grand reaping of the full resurrection of the body. Um, because that will be the full harvest. So Jesus is the first fruits. The church gaining the Holy Spirit at Pentecost is the harvest. Um, and there are some who think that the rapture might also be the ultimate fulfillment of the Feast of Pentecost and gathering um, the whole church at once. But there's a couple of different ideas. We'll get to that when we get to Leviticus. But there, those three annual feasts are important, and we'll cover them again in more detail in Leviticus, um, because Leviticus covers all of the biblical feasts. And now following, following this, basically it says, Behold, I send an angel before you to keep in the way to bring into the place which I have prepared. Beware of him and obey his voice. Do not provoke him, for he will not pardon your transgressions, for my name is in him. So basically, an angel, this could be the angel of the Lord, which could be the incarnate Jesus in the Old Testament, will go before them as they go about to the promised land. Um, and that's what's going to happen. Chapter 24, all of this breaks down. Moses receives the law. He comes down and he's telling the people about the law. Um, and this is, you know, in, verse, in chapter 24, we'll pick up in verse 6. This is what happens as uh, Moses relays this information to the Israelites. As Moses took the blood, so he committed an offering, right? And Moses takes half the blood and put it in basins. Half the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant. So all of this, all of this information thus far, he took the book of the covenant and read in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has said, we will do and be obedient. And Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people. This is the blood of the covenant, which has made with you according to all these words. So blood is the symbol of the covenant, of the relationship between the people of Israel and God. And so again, you see that blood paves the way of an understanding of the connection to God. Uh, and it renews our connection with God through the blood of Christ. But this is the sign of the covenant and that these people are now consecrated and ready to serve God after this great grand display. And so Moses is on the mountain and he is, he's got the tablets and there's a cloud covering the mountain and it says this in verse 16, the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called out to Moses in the midst of the cloud, the sight of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on top of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. So Moses went into the midst of the cloud and went up into the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. So after the reading and after the consecration of the people and sprinkling, sprinkling the blood on them, and they have committed to the covenant with God, Moses goes back up the mountain and he's in the glory of God again. And he's there the mountain is covered in fire and he's covered in the glory of the Lord for 40 days and 40 nights. And he's getting more instruction from God during those 40 days. Now, in chapter 32, which we, we're not gonna cover, but we'll get the idea. In chapter 32, you see that the people were just impatient. 
They couldn't understand why Moses was taking so long. Uh, and in doing so, they ask Aaron to make them an idol, which is the second commandment. Don't do this. <laughs> the first commandment, don't put any other God before the Lord your God. They're breaking that, and they're breaking the second commandment by creating a God. So they're, create, they're creating a God, a golden calf. They're making an idol of a created thing, and then they're worshiping that thing and put it before God, and they're asking Aaron to do it. And they do that because they're impatient with Moses taking 40 days and 40 nights on this mountain. So within the span of a month and a half, this all goes out the window for the Israelites. Um, and I think that, that you know, we can give them a hard time, but honestly, how long, does it, how long is it before something becomes more important than God to me in my daily life? Not very long. I mean, have you, I have a smartphone, right? Like, it's, so, it's super easy to get stuck on an app or my focus and attention being put on something that it doesn't need to be, that there's, it's just pointless. Um, when even on that phone, I have an app for the Bible <laughs> that I could be opening up and reading. Uh, and so, you know, give them a hard time, but honestly, it's not much different from us. Moses is the one who's in direct connection with God, and they're just sitting there waiting, wondering when something's going to happen. And because they're impatient, and they can't wait a month and a half for Moses to come down and give them God's instruction, it doesn't matter that they see God working on the mountain because they're not personally connected to what's happening. They get distracted, and they, they fall off the rails, and they, they create a false god right there and break the covenant that they just created with Moses. And so the point of that really just being that even in the midst of incredible acts of God, even when you see it with your own eyes, even while you're seeing it with your own eyes, it's easy to get distracted. It's easy for them. It's easy for us. And so I would just say to try to make sure that we look up rather than within. A lot of the commandments about not allowing something to come before God, not creating a false idol, not worshiping the things of this world because they're nothing compared to the creator of this world is a reminder for us to look up rather than within. Because when we don't know what's coming, when we don't know what's around the corner, even when we see God doing amazing stuff but it doesn't feel personally connected with me, it's easy to look within and get distracted and take my eyes off God. But if I could look up, and if I can look at his word and see who he is and what he's always done, it's easier to not fail. It's also easier to have hope. So let's pray. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for this night and this study. Um, God, I just pray that you would give everybody a safe, a safe travel home. Um, God, we look forward to the next couple of weeks where we get to discuss the tabernacle um, and some of the instruments of worship, like the high priest garments and the instruments within the tabernacle and what all of that represents in a very unique way to understand how your word always points us to Jesus. So God, thank you for what's coming. Thank you for tonight. And I pray that we feel closer to you every week. In Jesus' name, amen.